Welcome to Wednesday night. Everybody doing well? You guys good? Awesome. Well, we're in Genesis chapter 42. Grab your Bibles, make your way to Genesis chapter 42 as we look into God's good word here tonight and the, the story, the life of Joseph and just some wonderful um, ah, just some wonderful truths for us as we go through his life and the things that God did. It's been quite a, quite a progression uh, so far as we've been tracking with the life of Joseph here. We've seen him go from the pit to Potiphar to prison and then now to the palace. Pastor Rob took us through uh, a couple of Wednesdays ago, chapters um, 39 and, and 40, and just seeing this progression or sorry, 40 and 41, this progression of Joseph. It's been quite remarkable to see how God has been ordaining his steps every step of the way. Even though God has been, uh, even though God has been directing him, he's, he's had to go through some pretty difficult days, right? There's been circumstances that might have made Joseph think that God was absent in his life here. Yet God was working through every situation and he's had a purpose for it all. This is the, the wonderful thing that we see in the life of Joseph. And the story of Joseph should really cause the believer to see how indeed God is working together to bring about his plans and his purposes for us and through us. It's just awesome to see this providential hand of God that leads Joseph through all of these difficulties and circumstances, and yet it's exactly what was needed to bring about God's purposes and plans here. Just know that God is at work in your life too. He's leading and directing, and at times he's allowing unwanted things in your life to accomplish his will, to accomplish his purposes and his plans. That's a, a hard thing for us sometimes. We want things to be comfortable, for things to be kind of in line with our will, <laughs> and yet God says, my will is what's gonna prevail and it's gonna be the good and perfect will for your life. And there are gonna be things that he allows to happen in our lives, but it's that providential hand of God leading to bring about his good plans and purposes. And the life of Joseph just illustrates that so wonderfully. So, so we move into chapter 42 here and, and we're in the midst of a famine, all right? Another difficulty, right? Something you'd be not praying for. God, would you just bring a famine because I feel this is gonna really help me to move forward in the things of God, right? We don't want that, but yet God allows this famine to come. And it's a famine that's impacting the, the whole world. But again, a difficult time for Jacob and his family. But you see, it's gonna be that event that God's gonna use to spring them into action, to move them into a place that they would not otherwise go in and of themselves, right? See, like I say, God's gonna have us go through times of difficulty to redirect us, to cause us to move in a direction that we might otherwise fight against. And so here in chapter 42, we're gonna see the details of Joseph's brothers and their first trip to Egypt. In chapter 43, we're gonna see that second trip to Egypt by his brothers. So here's the events that are unfolding. God providing a famine, moving them now to Egypt. But look at what we read here in chapter 42, verse one. It says this, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Let me stop right there. Now, there's a real contrast and difference that we see between Joseph and his brothers, right? Joseph is a guy of action. This is a guy that's stepping out, moving forward, trusting the Lord. He's, he's a man that we saw had wisdom in, in, and he saw the need for that wisdom and how to help him through different things. Joseph, remember back in chapter 41, he was recognized as a man. 41 verse 38, if you wanna look at that, he was recognized as a man. Sorry, I got the wrong, 41 38. No, it's there, sorry. 41 verse 38. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? So here's Joseph, he's recognized, even among a, 
a, a pagan nation. He's recognized as a guy that stands out because he's filled with the Spirit of God. I think that's very cool. His brothers, on the other hand, are all sitting around looking at one another, thinking, duh, uh, what do you think we should do here? There's a famine, I don't know what we should do. And they're all just kind of looking around at each other and they're just in, in, a, in a stupor. They don't know what to do. It's to the point where Jacob is having to give them a little kick in the rump, a little kickstart to get them to move into action here. Jacob's one that has to confront them. And so they make their way to Egypt, picking up in verse four, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall them. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So here's this entourage, not just of Joseph's uh, brothers minus Benjamin, but this kind of entourage, all those that were saying, we gotta get to Egypt. Joseph's the guy that, and they don't know it's Joseph, but he's this guy second in charge that's seen through the wisdom of God to store up. And so there's the storehouses in Egypt. They make their way there. Many people are coming from all over now. Now, what we see is that here's Jacob. Things haven't changed a lot for him in regards to this kind of favoritism he's showing. Remember, Benjamin is the last remaining part of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved. He thinks Joseph is gone, Rachel has passed away, Benjamin's the last remaining kind of, you know, connection to Rachel. And, and no doubt Benjamin has taken that place in Jacob's heart where Joseph had left that void or, or caused that void there. And so he requests that, has Benjamin stay home? Jacob's kind of a slow learner that he, he continued to show this favoritism that brought a lot of, you know, kind of disdain among the brothers for Joseph. Yet we'll see that the brothers have learned now how to handle this a lot better, all right? Moving along here, verse six. Now Joseph was governor over the land and it was he who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Now here is that, you know, beginning of the fulfillment to the dream that Joseph had back in Genesis chapter 37, verse seven. Remember he had the dream where all of their stocks were kind of bowing down to Joseph's stock and the brothers just kind of ridiculed. How, how could that ever be? And now we see the brothers actually coming and they're bowing down to him. They don't recognize it's Joseph. Now a lot has changed, right? Now, if I were Joseph here, it would be very tempting, wouldn't it? To be kind of looking at the brothers and going, ah, ha! I told you, you suckers, I said this is gonna happen and now it is and you just wanna kind of throw it in their face, wouldn't you? Kind of this validation. This is something they've kind of thought, you are off your rocker thinking this way. And yet here now it's actually happening just as Joseph said it would. It would have been a golden opportunity to vindicate yourself, to prove yourself. But he doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. Again, walking in some wisdom here. Notice what he does do, and this is kind of odd. It says that he speaks roughly to them. There in verse seven, he, he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Why would he do that? Well, Joseph's understanding here that he, he wants to see if his brothers truly have changed, if, there's, if they've really come to that place of conviction and repentance for what they've done. Joseph now is really kind of restraining himself because I'm sure he would love to have this great reunion, but he wants them to have a heart that's been changed, renewed, and right with God now. It's interesting that Joseph knew exactly this was his brothers, right? There in verse eight, but they did not recognize Joseph. Keep in mind, you know, it's nearly, Joseph's nearly 40 years old, right? He's adopted the Egyptian look, the culture, the clothes, he's speaking the Egyptian language. So the brothers, I mean, no way are they at all thinking. Now, they're all coming in as, as Hebrew men. They got beards, I'm sure. Joseph is probably clean shaven. He's got the royal garb on. I mean, it just looks complete. They never in their wildest dreams would they ever be trying to put two and two together and go, is this possibly Joseph? They're thinking he's either 
dead or he's serving as a slave somewhere and in somebody's home not sitting in the in the palace and so this is something that they're not even cluing into at all it's interesting how in in much the same way right and there's a lot of types and similarities between joseph's life and jesus's life but when jesus came the first time again the jews did not recognize him they they looked and they go this isn't the way that we would have pictured our messiah to be even though there's much written about Jesus throughout Old Testament scriptures, the Jews should have been prepared, should have been waiting, but they failed to recognize him. Thankfully, they're gonna have their eyes open at his second coming where it'll be that they respond in repentance and they turn to him. And so Joseph is looking to see his brothers come to that point of repentance before there can be true reconciliation. So Joseph's gonna bring them through some interesting test look at what we see in verse 9 then joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed about them and said to them you are spies you've come to see the nakedness of the land and they said to him no my lord but your servants have come to buy food we are all one man's sons we are honest men your servants are not spies but he said to them no but you've come to see the nakedness of the land and they said your servants are 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of canaan and in fact the youngest is with our father today and one is no more but Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. I mean, Joseph must have been having a lot of fun with these guys right now at this point, right? He's played up a little bit here, right? But he's kind of accusing them, throwing this out that you're just looking to conspire with maybe other nations kind of come into some kind of alliance. You want to check out the weak points of our land and maybe how you can come and invade or bring an army against us. You're spying things out and they're pleading with them. It's quite interesting to Hear the brothers respond in verse 11. We are honest men. Isn't that something? That's what they say. No, 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 no. We're all one man's sons, true. We're honest men. Not so much, right? Like they've just, seems completely seared their conscience, like to think that they can throw this out. Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to tell the story. A certain duke once boarded a galley ship. As he passed the crew of slaves, he asked several of them what their offenses were. Almost every man claimed he was innocent. They laid the blame on someone else or accused the judge of yielding to bribery. One young fellow, however, responded saying, sir, I deserve to be here. I stole some money. No one is at fault but myself. I'm guilty. Upon hearing this, the duke seized him by the shoulder and shouted, you scoundrel, what are you doing here with all these honest men? Get out of their company at once. And he was the one that was set at liberty while the rest were left to tug at the oars. And that's great. You see, confession and honesty does a lot for us. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We have to be open and honest with who we are and our need for Jesus, our need to come in repentance, confession, and come in honesty before the Lord. And Joseph needs to bring his brothers to the place now where they recognize their sin. We can often think that everything is all right in our lives when really there are things we need to deal with and repent of, things that will hinder us ultimately from moving forward in the things of God. And Joseph is more interested in seeing his brothers right with one another and with the Lord than Joseph is at just having a nice, joyous party together at this time. And that's important. I think that's so good that we don't excuse things in others and we certainly don't excuse things in our own lives, but we deal honestly with these things because the Lord is ready to forgive. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we fail to do that, then our fellowship is gonna be hindered with the Lord. Look at verse 15 as we read on. It says, in this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there's any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Now, like I said earlier, Joseph is, is about to kind of bring his brother through, or his brothers through a series of tests. And it's gonna revolve around the youngest brother, Benjamin. The purpose, ultimately to see if his brothers have changed. 
if there's a change of heart in how they handle you know, their younger brother, Benjamin, this, this one that's kind of been shown this you know, favoritism again, just like Joseph had, and to see if they, they're gonna treat Benjamin the same way they treat Joseph or not. So these tests that are gonna come are gonna really center around Benjamin. And you see, here's what we need to understand. God loves us too much to just leave us the way that we are. He wants us to grow and to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, in order to do that, God's gonna allow testing to come into our lives. Trials that will not be for the purpose of hurting us, but for the purpose of testing us to train us up and ultimately develop his character in us. James chapter one, verse two to four says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So understand, as these brothers are about to be tested, and, and Joseph says it very clearly in this matter, you shall be tested, God is gonna allow testing to come into our lives. Not, not to discourage or hurt us, but to say, I, I, I want you to be proven. I want you to come through the fire refined and better off for it. I wanna develop in you that character by which you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. So may we be those that are, are ready to embrace those difficulties and hardships and say, Lord, okay, you're allowing this in my life for your good purposes. Help me to embrace this and have the strength to endure in it so that I might come through better off as a result here. We'll look at verse 18. It says, then Joseph said to them the third day, do this and live. For I fear God, if you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Notice what Joseph says to his brothers there in verse 18. It's almost like a little bit of a hint because he says what? For I fear God. Now remember, Egyptians were a very polytheistic people. They worshiped many gods. But Joseph seems to be alluding to the idea that he, even though he's second in command of Egypt, he's declaring his devotion to God, the one true God. Joseph seemed to always, you know, take those opportunities to testify of the Lord in his life and to reveal that devotion he has to the Lord. So this may have been one of those things that caused his brothers to sort of wonder, question a little bit. But now, remember it's been about 21 years since Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Yet here they are now, after all these years, and notice something, they are still riddled with this guilt that they have and it's eating them up. Notice as, as Joseph you know, is ready to send them off. They're sitting there saying in verse 21, we're truly guilty concerning our brother. And they're reflecting on remembering how Joseph was crying out for them just to spare him and how they just denied it. They, they just rejected him. And they're recalling all this some 20 years after the fact. You know, our brains are like supersized hard drives that's able to retain all these things to memory, oftentimes retaining the things to memory that we don't want to retain and the things that we want to retain, we don't retain. So maybe they're not supersized hard drives after all, but they're, you know, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but we have selective memory. Sadly, oftentimes we're remembering the things we don't want to remember. But it's interesting that these brothers are associating all their problems that they're experiencing right now with the crime that they committed to Joseph. Even though there's no, you know, th there should really not be any direct correlation in their minds, but yet they're perceiving all the stuff that's coming upon them as a direct correlation to what they had once did. A guilty conscience sees all trouble as punishment for wrongdoing. There was a, a man who wrote a letter to the IRS with a check enclosed and said, I cheated on my taxes and I cannot sleep. Here's a check for $100 and if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. 
but sometimes we're thinking, man, there's a reason why I'm experiencing this. And it's oftentimes because of my wrongdoing. And here the brothers are associating what they're getting right now with the wrongdoings of their past. And they're feeling that guilt. Guilt hangs on until it is dealt with. I think the only thing that effectively removes guilt is to accept that redeeming and cleansing blood of Jesus that wipes away every sin and wrongdoing in our lives. And to believe the words that are said in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've come to Christ repented of your sin and you are now in Christ and there's no now any condemnation upon you. Oh, it doesn't mean that we're not gonna make mistakes, but when we make mistakes, like we said earlier, 1 John 1, 9, we confess that, we take that to the Lord, and he'll forgive. Likewise, the brother's guilt will pass when they repent and are reconciled with Joseph. Joseph's brothers were racked with guilt that, in the context of the Bible, put them in the way of grace. This is good guilt healthy guilt, graced guilt. Without guilt, there could be no forgiveness and no resolution. And without guilt, they could never assume their covenant mantles. Perhaps your growing knowledge of God's word and your own heart is helping you understand and acknowledge your guilt. If so, embrace it because such an embrace can be a prelude to grace as Hughes writes in his commentary. I love that. That's so good. Good guilt, healthy guilt. Let that guilt lead you to repentance that you might experience that grace of God. So Joseph has one brother remain behind. This would have allowed the other nine to return back to Canaan where Jacob was with even more grain rather than having all nine remain and send just one back. Now Joseph says, let's send nine back. Let's have you take more grain back to your family and then see how those nine do in bringing Benjamin back? Will there be some conspiring along the way? Will they say, Benjamin, this is all your fault. You're a problem. And will they look to do to Benjamin what they did to Joseph? So again, this test is coming up. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them saying, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Therefore behold, his, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain to restore every man's money to a sack and give to them provisions for their journey. Thus he did for them, verse 26, so they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. So again, the, the brothers are all speaking and Joseph hears what they're saying. They don't know Joseph can understand them because previously he's speaking Egyptian and he's got an interpreter. And, and Joseph is, is beginning to see this kind of brokenness in his brothers and he's weeping over that. It's exactly what he's wanting to see. But now look at Joseph holds Simeon back. He's taken, he's held back. Simeon was the, the second oldest. Reuben being the oldest, why didn't Reuben remain back? Well, remember Reuben was the one that was trying to protect Joseph earlier. So perhaps Joseph is kind of giving Reuben a bit of a break. Simeon was a, a bit of a, a rebel, a, a problem. We, we know the incident of Shechem in chapter 34 where it revealed that Simeon was a very violent man. So perhaps, perhaps Simeon was that ringleader in the plot against Joseph. So Joseph, we don't know why exactly, but these are all potential reasons. He has Simeon remain back. And the brothers now have their money returned in their sacks without them knowing it. Why? Well, again, Joseph stands as a picture of Jesus, and he is the one to whom all must come to for life-sustaining food. It's a picture of salvation, and we can't buy or earn salvation, can we? It's a gift of God. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1 and 2 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. I think there's a wonderful picture for us too of that freedom of salvation, that free gift that God gives to us. Well, verse 27, but as one of them opened a sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money. 
And there it was in the mouth of a sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan and told them all that had happened to them saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Verse 33. Then the man, the Lord of the country, said to us, By this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you, and you may trade in the land. So the brothers... They're all really freaking out at the events that are transpiring right now. They've done none of this themselves, and yet they put it on God. Notice what they say, what has he done to us? They're like, what has God done? This, they didn't take the money themselves, but they're seeing all these things happening, and they're like, what has he done to us? They never once stopped to think, is this just the generosity of a gracious Egyptian? I mean, that would seem kind of too good to be true, wouldn't it? Which is... Sadly, how oftentimes many respond to the grace of God. Can this really be? Can God really be supplying me this gift of salvation freely? Can this really be? See, when we begin to recognize what God has done for us, freely saving us by his grace, where we've done none of it ourselves, it should cause us to respond like the brothers as well. What is this that God has done to us? Do you ever stop and just go, what is this? Not in a negative way, like the brothers are kind of confused, but in a positive way saying, what is this that God has done to us? Praise the Lord. He is a good, gracious God who saves me when I least deserve it, who continues to shower his love and favor upon me. What is this that God has done to us? Praise the Lord for that. Reading on in verse 35. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in a sack and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father said to them, you bereave me, Joseph is no more, Simeon is no more and you wanna take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Here's a sad reply that's in sharp contrast to Joseph. See, Jacob thought nothing was going right when in fact everything was being ordered along exactly as God intended it to, perfectly. Though Joseph went through much more severe troubles, those were words that Joseph never echoed. Never do you hear Joseph saying, God, where are you? All these things are against me. Falsely accused, thrown in a prison, not to mention, rejected by his brothers, cast in a pit, sold into slavery forgotten in prison then nowhere do we hear joseph ever utter words at all along that vein all these things are against me and yet jacob is quick to throw this out there as a believer you can either say all these things are against me or all things are working for me romans 8 28 is a great theme through the story of joseph we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Never would anybody ever imagine that all these events that Joseph had to endure would lead him to be second in charge of the greatest world power at that time in Egypt. Nobody ever thought, well, let's start with, you know, having his brothers reject him, selling him off into slavery having him being a servant in Potiphar's house, having him being falsely accused and thrown into prison, forgotten prison. Nobody would ever look at these events and go, that's just a, a very great surefire way to get Joseph to be second in command. And yet, what you see is that God is orchestrating all these things, bringing them about in such a perfect way, and perfect timing to lead Joseph to be second in command. All things were working together for good. We don't see it at the time in our lives. We don't see how certain things that we might have to endure and go through are working out. That's why we have to respond by faith. Where none of us need to, like Jacob, 
take the attitude of all these things are against me, but rather like Joseph, we can say, well, let's wait and see what God's gonna do in this and through this, because God's not done. His work is still continuing to unfold. That story is still being written. Let's see what God will do. Verse 37, then Reuben spoke to his father saying, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I'll bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother's dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. So Jacob isn't budging here. It seems like the brothers are hoping to go rescue Simeon, but Jacob doesn't seem to be too concerned about Simeon. Again, this seems to maybe indicate the character of Simeon was less than appealing. And Jacob's like, ah, Benjamin or Simeon? Yeah, I'm gonna favor Benjamin here. Simeon can wait it out. I'm not ready to have Benjamin go away from me. But God's got his ways of moving us, right? Like what we see next here. (laughs) It says in chapter 43, verse one, Now, the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. But Judah now spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. Verse five, but if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told them according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? So, Judah's responding to Jacob, being very fair with the situations going on. Jacob probably was hoping that that first batch of supplies would have carried them through the famine so that they wouldn't have to go back to Egypt. Maybe he's thinking that this should do us until we ride out the famine, then we'll be able to have our own goods, but it's not happening that way. There's a good lesson for us here, that we need to continually go to Jesus and come to Jesus for daily feeding and nourishing. Joseph, that type of Jesus, the brothers are needing to go back to him. They can't rest on, rely on what they have received. We can't rely on what we received last month or last week. Just like that manna that came down, they were to go out every day and take some of that for themselves, not store up. Every day was to be a new day where you go out and you look to see what God's gonna provide. And that's how we need to be in our, in our life with the Lord, continually and daily coming to him for that fresh nourishment and sustenance in his word and through that time of, of just devotion and quiet time with the Lord, how important that is for us. Verse eight, then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Here's what Judah says, verse nine. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Isn't that amazing that our greater than Judah, Jesus who came from the tribe of Judah, comes and he's that surety for us. He bore the blame that we deserved. He took all of that in our stead and he paid the ultimate price for us. And here Judah is saying, you can account, you can take my life. You can, I, I will be surety for him. I will be the one that will secure Benjamin just as the Lord has secured us. Verse 10, for if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Just kind of, you know, butter up Joseph a little bit. Let's have a little bit extra insurance for favor there. Verse 12, take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. You know, it's a little bit of irony here. 
because Jacob has his sons take back double the money, verse 12. David Guzik said this, since 10 brothers went to Egypt and they took double money, there were 20 units of money. This answered exactly to the 20 pieces of silver that they sold Joseph for in Genesis chapter 37, verse 28. The words for silver and money are the same. Sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Here now they're coming back with 20 pieces of money. The exact same amount that they sold Joseph for. There's an accounting happening here. I think that's very interesting. Notice what Jacob says, if I'm bereaved, I am bereaved. See, Jacob now is coming to a point of surrender and laying down his own agenda to the Lord's will. Whether he knew it or not at this time, that was the right attitude to have. See, we don't have control in a lot of these things, do we? But we know who does. And our job is to lay our will down to the Lord's. Our job is not to try to fight through on our own, try to make it according to what we want or our way. Our job is to say, Lord, it's your way that I wanna follow. And I need to subject my will to yours. I need to lay my will down to yours. It reminds us of what we read in the book of Esther. When Esther was herself in a very pivotal time in her life and for all of Israel. And she says in Esther 4.16, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or, or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And she says, if I perish, I perish. It's amazing. Esther's commitment here serves as a model for what our commitment to Christ should be. Ready to give all. That's why Jesus would say, if anyone desires to come after me, let him lay down his life. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Paul echoed that same sentiment when he said in Acts 20, verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Do we have that same kind of attitude where we can say, none of these things move me? If I perish, I perish. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Ultimately though, Lord, your will be done. And may I be okay with that. May I be willing to lay down my will for your will. Lord, may I see your purposes prevail in my life. May I not get in the way of that. May I be ready to have that same kind of attitude and disposition like, like in Esther, like in Jacob here who's finally coming around it seems to say, God, your will be done. Let it be so. See, commitment and sacrifice are the ingredients of a true believer. Are you ready to surrender all and trust the Lord with the outcome of your life? Are you willing to be in that place where you just let go and say, God, whatever you have for me, I'm willing to walk in that. I'm willing to receive that. Verse 15, so the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us to take us as slaves with our donkeys. So these brothers now, they're right to feel a little concerned and insecure, right? I mean, they're in the presence of Joseph. Now when Joseph says, take them to my house, they're thinking, oh boy, that's it. <laughs> Say goodbyes, I could be in this last time. We're gonna see daylight, right? They're, they're getting a little worried and rightfully so. Or so they thought. Now look at verse 19, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked to them at the door of the house and said, oh sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there, each man's money was in the mouth of a sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it back in our hand and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks, but he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. 
Then he brought Simeon out to them. It's so many. So they're, they're coming to the house. They're just like, okay, help us out here. We didn't mean anything. This was all done. We had nothing to do with this, you know? And they're trying to state their case. They're trying to just plea for some kind of mercy. They're thinking, oh man, if we have to go into Joseph's work, nobody's going to see us again. And they're pleading with the servant that's standing there. But I think this is so wonderful. Because what happens is steward now in the house begins to bring peace to them and comfort them. We don't know who the steward is. He's unnamed. And throughout scripture, interestingly enough, we run into a few unnamed servants. Servants. They become these shadows, these types of the work of the Holy Spirit who comes into the world to testify of Christ, not making a name for themselves. We, we saw that with the servant of Abraham that went to find a bride in a, a Gentile territory for Isaac. Unnamed servant. Anonymous, doing that work. And here's this servant now just testifying for Joseph but bringing that peace. See, the Holy Spirit comes into the world to bring that peace, that comfort. He's called the comforter. Jesus explained this is the comfort. It's gonna come and help you. Be that, that spirit of peace in your life. See, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He comforts us. He brings us peace when our hearts may fail us. And these brothers, their hearts are failing them. They're struggling. But suddenly they have this great assurance. Romans 5, 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The, the Holy Spirit is taking residence on our lives to continue to pour out that love of God and remind us who we are in Christ to bring that peace and comfort to us. I think that's so awesome. So verse 24, so the man brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water, and, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house, and bowed down before him to the earth. Here again, uh, a fuller fulfillment of that dream that Joseph had in Genesis 37 with his brothers now, all of them with Benjamin bowing down, just like he said would happen. There's gonna be a further, a final fulfillment of that when Jacob would come and all of them would be bowing down before him. Well, moving along, verse 27, then he asked them about their well-being and said, is your father well? The old man of whom he spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. See, Joseph is just so overcome with emotion at, at, at realizing here's his brother. It, it's been so long. Benjamin has just been a little guy when Joseph was taken away from him. He's not seen him grow up. Suddenly he sees this person, this young man here before him. This man that he's not had a chance to know fully. This is his only full brother. He can't contain himself. But with great self-control, he doesn't let the brothers in on who he is yet. Why? There's still more testing to unfold, to really see if there's been a full change of heart in his brothers. So Joseph, he restrains himself or he at least removes himself so that he can go and weep in private so that he doesn't let on to his brothers of, of who he is just yet. Verse 31, then he washed his face. He came out and he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. Interesting. Now, what we see in that passage here is that we have a little bit of insight, especially in verse 32. We have some insight now as to why God would move this young, upstart nation of Israel to Egypt to live for 400 years. 
because it was there in Egypt, like we see here, where the Egyptians would want nothing to do with, Egypt, with, with Israel. The Egyptians would not even sit and eat with them. They saw the Hebrew people, they saw shepherds uh, as just unclean. And so they had nothing to do with Israel. So God would allow this young beginning of this nation, as they're very small when they moved to Egypt, to be able to grow and to be left kind of untouched, to be where they wouldn't be defiled by their pagan neighbors. You know the problems that Israel had living elsewhere with falling prey to pagan neighbors and carrying on kind of the, the same sort of pagan practices that their neighbors were doing. Well, there in Egypt now, they would be able to grow, kind of be in this sort of protective womb that Egypt would become for them as a young nation to grow and become very strong and mighty. You saw what happens now in the beginning of Exodus when 400 years later, the, the Pharaoh's looking at these nation, this nation going, these guys are getting strong. They're gonna be able to overpower us. We gotta do something. See, God's wisdom, he moves them out of Canaan and brings them in a place where they can grow and remain kind of naturally protected and consecrated. Now, Joseph has a little bit of fun here at this kind of dinner with his brothers, right? Comes and he has them all seated according to their ages. Now, this was no coincidence. Obviously, Joseph knew, but imagine what their brothers are all thinking as they're looking down the line. You know, and they would have all been, you know, kind of coming in um, bearded. It's, it's hard to really know them by their age, right? I mean, they're kind of disguised, a little not disguised, but I mean, it's hard to tell when you're all just got these long beards, right? You can take a 20 year old who's got a long beard, you go, you know, I had no idea. You look like you're 40 years old type thing, right? But um, no offense, Daniel, but I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, your beard's fine. Your beard looks good. Uh, but, you know, this would be hard for them to, to fathom and reason that, oh, this is just some, in fact, uh, mathematically, this would be to seat everybody randomly, just in that order by age, would be one in 40 million to do it that way. Th this is astronomical. It'd be a one in 40 million chance for them to be arranged that way just coincidentally. So the brothers were obviously amazed at this. And then, Joseph begins to serve them from his table. And what does he do? He brings Benjamin a plate that's got five times as much as everybody else's. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, can you imagine just the look of the brothers? Like, going, what in the world is going on? We cannot catch a break around here, man. Benjamin, again, another test. No doubt Joseph just out of love, showing this favor, but, but more so a test to see how are his brothers going to respond when the youngest gets treated differently and is shown favoritism, because Joseph was treated differently, Joseph was shown favoritism and his brothers despised him. So now again, another test to see, how are they gonna respond? Are they gonna respond in jealousy and pettiness? So Joseph is bringing them through this testing here in chapter 43, 42 and 43. We're gonna continue on chapter 44 next time to see just really how this kind of unfolds and begin to see this great reconciling, reuniting work that takes place among them. But you see, it was a great day here. Good things had happened this day. As Alan Ross explains, in this chapter, the brothers promised to take the blame for any catastrophe take responsibility. They acknowledged their culpability and made restitution for the money in their sacks, showing honesty. They retrieved their brother from prison in Egypt. Great unity. They recognized that God was at work in their midst. They had belief and they re rejoiced in their provisions even when a brother was receiving more than they were. Showed great gratitude. And, and I think this whole scene is so reminiscent of just that last supper with Jesus and his disciples. After Judas had left, Jesus is there with the 11. Here's Joseph with 11 of his brothers. Joseph is there just serving them. Jesus demonstrated that well at the last supper as well. Joseph has sacrificed much to provide for his brothers. Jesus is gonna give the ultimate sacrifice to provide for us all that we need for life and salvation. 
There's some great illustrations that we see in the story of Joseph, and we'll pick it up next time, moving to chapter 44 and seeing that. But tonight, let's just take time, worship team, would you come up? And let's just take time to give thanks to the Lord for all that he's done for us. Maybe there's things in your life that after we're seeing the example of the brothers, we need to get right with the Lord. And maybe we've been hindered in our walk with the Lord because of things that we've been holding on to, things that we've been hesitant to confess and turn over to the Lord. Maybe we need to do that here tonight. Just know again, as we've said, that as you confess, as you make things right, God is quick to restore and, and reconcile us. That's the heart of the Father. That's what he desires. Jesus has done it all for us. We rejoice in that. Just as Joseph has made it all possible through what he's gone through, Jesus has made it all possible through what he's gone through for us. So may we rejoice in him and we give thanks. May we take time just to wait on the Lord here tonight. So let's stand together and let's just ask the Lord to continue that work in our hearts here tonight as we respond to him and his word here. Lord, we thank you for the example we see in Joseph and and how you worked in him. And God, we, we're just so grateful to see that, that providential hand leading. And, and Lord, you do so at times through ways that we don't always want to see happen, but yet we see that your work is unfolding in it and through it. May we be those that just all the more are ready to trust you every step of the way, to know that how difficult something might be in front of us, God, you're, you're gonna use that for good. Lord, if we just keep relying on you, trusting in you, and so may we do that. God, reveal anything in our lives tonight that we need to get right and surrender to you. May we be quick to lay our will down to your will, Lord, and just to serve you faithfully and rejoice in you, God, because you're good. You've shown such great love and grace and favor towards us, so may we rejoice in you, in all things. So we pray this in your name, amen.